Part One of Chapter Two of Animal Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Animal Ghosts by Elliot O'Donnell. Chapter Two, Part One: Apparitions of Dogs. One of the most extraordinary cases of hauntings by the phantasms of dogs is related in an old Christmas number of the Review of Reviews, edited by the late Mr. W.T. Steed, and entitled Real Ghost Stories. The most remarkable, writes Mr. Steed, of all the stories which I have heard concerning ghosts which touch is one that reaches me from Darlington. I owe this as I owe so many of the other narratives in this collection, to the Reverend Harry Kendall of Darlington, whose painstaking perseverance in the collection of all matters of this kind cannot be too highly praised. Mr. Kendall is a congregational minister of old standing. He was my pastor when I was editing Northern Echo, and he is the author of a remarkable book entitled All the World's Akin. The following narrative is quite unique in its own way, and fortunately he was able to get it at first hand from the only living person present. Here we have a ghost, which not only strikes the first blow, hitting a man fair in the eye, but afterwards sets a ghostly dog upon his victim and then disappears. The narrative was signed by Mr. James Durham as lately as December 5, 1980. Mr. Steed then proceeds to quote the account which he had from Mr. Kendall, and which I append ad verbum from the Review of Reviews. It is as follows. I was night watchman at the old Darlington and Stockton station at the town of Darlington, a few yards from the first station that ever existed. I was there fifteen years. I used to go on duty about 8 p.m. and come off at 6 a.m., I had been there a little while, perhaps two or three years, and about forty years ago. One night, during winter at about twelve o'clock, or twelve-thirty, I was feeling rather cold with standing here and there. I said to myself, I will away down and get something to eat. There was a porter's cellar where a fire was kept on and a coal house was connected with it. So I went down the steps took off my overcoat, and had just sat down on the bench opposite the fire and turned up the gas when a strange man came out of the coal house, followed by a big black retriever. As soon as he entered, my eye was upon him, and his eye upon me, and we were intently watching each other as he moved on to the front of the fire. There he stood looking at me, and a curious smile came over his countenance. He had a stand-up collar and a cutaway coat with gilt buttons and a scotch cap. All at once he struck at me, and I had the impression that he hit me. I up with my fist and struck back at him. My fist seemed to go through him and struck against the stone above the fireplace and knocked the skin off my knuckles. The man seemed to be struck back into the fire and uttered a strange, unearthly squeak. Immediately, the dog gripped me by the calf of my leg and seemed to cause me pain. The man recovered his position, called off the dog with a sort of click of the tongue, then went back into the coal house, followed by the dog. 
I lighted by dark lantern and looked into the coal house, but there was neither dog nor man, and no outlet for them except the one by which they had entered. I was satisfied that what I had seen was ghostly, and it accounted for the fact that when the man had first come into the place where he sat, I had not challenged him with any inquiry. Next day, and for several weeks, my account caused quite a commotion, and a host of people spoke to me about it. Among the rest, old Edward Pease, father of railways, and his three sons, John, Joseph, and Henry. Old Edward sent for me to his house and asked me all particulars. He and others put this question to me. Are you sure you were not asleep and had the nightmare? My answer was quite sure, for I had not been a minute in the cellar and was just going to get something to eat. I was certainly not under the influence of strong drink, for I was then, as I have been for forty-nine years, a teetotaler. My mind at the time was perfectly free from trouble. What increased the excitement was the fact that a man, a number of years before, who was employed in the office of the station, had committed suicide, and his body had been carried into this very cellar. I knew nothing of this circumstance, nor of the body of the man, but Mr. Pease and others who had known him told me my description exactly corresponded to his appearance, and the way he dressed, and also that he had a black retriever, just like the one which gripped me. I should add that no mark or effect remained on the spot where I seemed to be seized. Signed, James Durham. December ninth. 1890. Following the above statement, Mr. Steed appends Mr. Kendall's reasons for believing that what James Durham experienced was objective psychic phenomena and neither produced during sleep nor by hallucination. The arguments used to strike me as being so concise and sensible that I think it will not be out of place to reproduce them. First, Mr. Kendall says, he, James Durham, was accustomed as a watchman to be up all night, and therefore not likely from that cause to feel sleepy. Secondly, he had scarcely been a minute in the cellar, and, feeling hungry, was just going to get something to eat. Thirdly, if he was asleep at the beginning of the vision, he must have been awake enough during the latter part of it, when he had knocked the skin off his knuckles. Fourthly, there was his own confident testimony. I strongly incline to the opinion that there was an objective cause for the vision and that it was genuinely apparitional. So interested was Mr. Kendall in the case that he visited the spot some short time later. He was taken into the cellar where the manifestations took place, and his guide, an old official of the North Road Station, informed him he well remembered the clerk, a man of the name of Winter, who committed suicide there, and showed him the exact spot where he had shot himself with a pistol. In dress and appearance, Mr. Winter corresponded minutely with the phenomenon described by James Durham, and he had had a black retriever. Mr. Kendall came away more convinced than ever of the veracity of James Durham's story, though he admits it was not evidential after the high standard of the SPR. I do not know whether the SPR published the case, and I certainly do not think Mr. Kendall need have minded if they did not. 
for after all there is no reason to suppose the judgment of the spr is always infallible mr steed does not comment on the apparition of the dog which leads one to suppose cases of animal phantasms were by no means uncommon to him the gray dog of blank house birmingham according to a story current in the midlands a house in birmingham near the roman catholic cathedral was once very badly haunted a family who took up their abode in it in the eighties complained of hearing all sorts of uncanny sounds such as screams and sighs coming from a room behind the kitchen on one occasion the tenant's wife on entering the sitting-room was almost startled out of her senses at seeing standing before the fireplace the figure of a tall stout man with a large gray dog by his side what was so alarming about the man was his face it was apparently a mere blob of flesh without any features in it the lady screamed out whereupon there was a terrific crash as if all the crockery in the house had been suddenly clashed on the stone floor and a friend of the ladies attracted to the spot by the noise saw two clouds of vapor one resembling a man and the other a dog which after hovering over the hearth for several seconds finally dispersed altogether a gas fitter when working in the house saw the same figures no less than nine times and so distinctly that he was able to give a detailed description of both man and dog the house seems to have been well known in birmingham and was certainly standing as recently as eighteen eighty five many theories were advanced as to its history the one gaining the most credence being that it was occupied in eighteen twenty nine by a man who supplied the medical students with human bodies it was noticed at the time that many people who were seen to enter the house in the company of the owner were never seen to leave it which accords well with the theory of resurrection men no suggestion has been offered to account for the animal which may very easily have been the phantom of the murderer's dog or what is rather less likely the dog of one of his numerous victims anyhow explanation or no explanation the fact remains that the house was haunted in the manner described and f gray a warwickshire chief constable in his recollections published in eighteen twenty one alludes to it the dog in the cupboard miss prettyman whom i met some years ago in cornwall told me she once lived in a house in westmoreland and it was haunted by the apparition of a large dog enveloped in a bluish glow which apparently emanated from within it the dog whilst appearing in all parts of the house invariably vanished in a big cupboard at the back of the hall staircase miss prettyman her family several of their visitors and the servants all saw the same phantasm and were perhaps more frightened by the suddenness of its advent than by its actual appearance the theory was that it was the ghost of some dog that had been cruelly done to death possibly by starvation in the cupboard how the ghost of a dog saved life when i was a boy an elderly friend of mine miss la fanu narrated to me an anecdote which impressed me much it was to this effect 
Miss Lefanu was walking one day along a very lonely country lane when she suddenly observed an enormous Newfoundland dog following in her wake a few yards behind. Being very fond of dogs, she called out to it in a caressing voice and endeavored to stroke it. To her disappointment, however, it dodged aside and repeated the maneuver every time she tried to touch it. At length, losing patience, she desisted and resumed her walk, the dog still following her. In this fashion, they went on until they came to a particularly dark part of the road where the branches of the trees almost met overhead, and there was a pool of stagnant, slimy water suggestive of great depth. On the one side, the hedge was high, but on the other, there was a slight gap leading into a thick spinney. Miss Lefanu never visited the spot alone after dusk, and had been warned against it even in the daytime. As she drew near to it, everything that she had ever heard about it flashed across her mind, and she was more than once on the verge of turning back, when the sight of the big, friendly-looking dog plodding behind, reassuring her, she pressed on. Just as she came to the gap, there was a loud snapping of twigs, and, to her horror, two tramps, with singularly sinister faces, sprang out and were about to strike her with their bludgeons when the dog, uttering a low, ominous growl, dashed at them. In an instant, the expression of murderous joy in their eyes died out. One of abject terror took its place, and, dropping their weapons, they fled, as if the very salvation of their souls depended on it. As may be imagined, Miss Lafanu lost no time in getting home, and the first thing she did on arriving there was to go into the kitchen and order the cook to prepare, at once, a thoroughly good meal for her gallant rescuer, the Newfoundland dog, which she had shut up securely in the back yard, with the laughing remark, "'There, you can't escape me now!' Judge of her astonishment, however, when on her return, the dog had gone." As the walls of the back yard were twelve feet high, and the doors had been shut all the while, no one having passed through them, it was impossible for the animal to have escaped, and the only interpretation that could possibly be put on the matter was that the dog was superphysical, a conclusion that was subsequently confirmed by the experiences of other various people. As the result of exhaustive inquiries, Miss Lefanu eventually learned that many years before, on the very spot where the tramps had leaped out at her, a peddler and his Newfoundland dog had been discovered murdered. This story being true, then, there is one more link in the chain of evidence to show that dogs, as well as men, have spirits, and spirits that can, on occasion at least, perform deeds of practical service. A Precentor's Story The late Mr. W.T. Steed, in his volume of Real Ghost Stories, narrates the following, which by reason of its being witnessed by three people simultaneously, may be regarded as highly evidential. In reply to Mr. Steed's request to hear the anecdote, the precentor says, I quote him ad verbum, I was walking about nine years ago, one night in August, about ten o'clock, and about half a mile from the house where we are now sitting. I was going along the public road between the hamlets of Mill of Haldane and Ballock. 
I had with me two young women, and we were leisurely walking along, when suddenly we were startled by seeing a woman, a child about seven years old, and a Newfoundland dog jump over the stone wall, which was on one side of the road, and walk on rapidly in front of us. I was not in the least frightened, but my two companions were very much startled. What bothered me was that this woman, the child, and the dog, instead of coming over the wall naturally one after the other, as would have been necessary for them to do, had come with a bound, simultaneously leaping the wall, lighting on the road, and then hurrying on without a word. Leaving my two companions, who were too frightened to move, I walked rapidly after the trio. They walked on so quickly that it was with difficulty that I got up to them. I spoke to the woman. She never answered. I walked beside her for some little distance, and then suddenly the woman, the child, and the Newfoundland dog disappeared. I did not see them go anywhere. They simply were no longer there. I examined the road minutely at the spot where they had disappeared to see if it was possible for them to have gone through a hole in the wall on either side but it was quite impossible for a woman and a child to get over a high dike on either side. They had disappeared, and I only regret that I did not try to pass my stick through their bodies to see whether or not they had any resistance. Finding they had gone, I returned to my lady friends, who were quite unnerved, and who, with difficulty, were induced to go on to the end of their journey. One of his companions, Mr. Steed goes on to explain, who heard him tell the story at the time, corroborated the fact that it had made a great impression on those who had seen it. Nothing was ever ascertained as to any woman, child, or Newfoundland dog that had ever been in the district before. When they got to Ballock, they inquired of the keeper of the bridge whether a woman, a child, and a dog had passed that way, but he had seen nothing. The apparition had disappeared as suddenly as it had appeared. Mr. Steed's article ends here. Of course, one can only surmise as to the nature of the phenomena. No member of the Psychical Research Society could do more, and in the absence of any authentic history of the spot where the manifestations occurred, such a surmise can be of little value. Since the phenomena were seen by three people at the same time, it is quite safe to assume they were objective, but it is impossible to lay down the law as to whether they were actual phantasms of the dead, a woman, child, and Newfoundland dog, who had all three met with some violent end, or phantasms of three living beings, who, happening to think of that locality at the same time, had projected their immaterial bodies there simultaneously. But whichever of these alternatives be true, the same thing holds good in either case. The Newfoundland dog had a spirit, and what applies to one dog should assuredly apply to the generality, if not, indeed, to all. Phantom Dog Seen on Souter Fell Miss Harriet Martineau, in her English Lakes, refers to certain strange phenomena seen from time to time on Souter Fell. In 1745, for example, a Mr. Wren and his servant saw, simultaneously, a man and a dog pursuing some horses along a razor-like ridge of rocks, on which it was obviously impossible for any ordinary being to gain a bare foothold, let alone walk. 
they watched these figures until the latter suddenly vanished when mr wren and his servant thinking perhaps the man dog and horses had really fallen over the cliff went to look for them they searched elsewhere but despite their vigilance nothing was to be found and convinced at last that what they had seen was something superphysical they came away mystified and no doubt somewhat frightened there is no suggestion to make here other than the manifestations may have been phantasms of a man dog and horses that at some former date had been killed either accidentally or purposely in or near that spot the jumping ghost mr george sinclair in his work satan's invisible world discovered gives a detailed account of hauntings in a house in mary king's close edinburgh the house at the time mr sinclair writes was occupied by mr thomas colthart a law agent seated one afternoon at home reading mrs colthart was immeasurably startled at seeing suspended in mid-air gazing at her the head of an old man she uttered some sort of exclamation most probably a cry and the apparition at once vanished some nights later when in bed both she and her husband saw the same head which was presently joined by the head of a child and a long naked arm which tried to catch hold of them on another occasion a member of the colthart family was greatly alarmed by the sudden appearance of a large dog which leaped on the chair by her side and as suddenly disappeared every effort was made to lay the ghosts ministers and one knows how pious scotch clergymen are were called in but their exhortations instead of dispelling or even minimizing the phenomena only increased them it was a case of more prayers more spooks which state of affairs however complimentary to the minister's powers of address was scarcely as comforting to the colt hearts who, unable to bear the strange sights and noises any longer, evacuated the premises. As no other tenants could be found, the house was eventually pulled down, and a row of fine modern buildings now occupy the site. As the history of the place could never be traced with any degree of authenticity, one can do no more than speculate as to the cause of the disturbances, which, I am inclined to think, were due to the phantoms of people and animals that had once actually lived and died there. Dogs Seen Before a Death Mrs. Crow, in her Night Side of Nature, mentions the case of a young lady named P, who saw a big black dog twice suddenly appear and disappear by her side, immediately before the death of her mother in the unseen world a story is also told of the phantasm of a big black dog appearing on the bed of a cornish child doomed to die shortly afterwards the same dog invariably manifesting itself before the death of any member of the child's family there are so many cases of a similar kind one hears of them nearly everywhere one goes that one is led to believe some of them at least must be true there is no more reason to believe all ghost storytellers are liars than there is to believe all parsons are liars. And this being so, additional proof is afforded of the continuation of the dog's life after death, for these family canine ghosts are more than probably the phantasms of dogs that once belonged to families, maybe centuries ago, and met their fate in some cruel or unnatural manner. End of Part 1 
of chapter two of animal ghosts